Welcome to In The Demo, a show about the stories that get told about groups, how those stories got made, what we think those stories get wrong, and why it matters. You hosts, Farah Bostic is the founder and head of research and strategy of The Difference Engine, a strategic insights consultancy focused on helping business leaders make decisions. Adam Piano, author and brand consultant and managing director of brand strategy at Arizona State University. You are now in the demo. I'm Adam Pierno, Generation X. And I'm Farah Bostic, the two Corys generation. <laughs> Wait, how many? There's two Corys. Are you sure there's not more? I feel like there was like we were besieged by Corys. I also felt that there had to have been at least three Corys, but according to the Wikipedia entry, the two Corys, there are two Corys. <laughs> oh, I think the Wikipedia headlines should solve every debate that we have, at least at like a a pub level. If it, if the True. headline of the Wikipedia, never mind paragraph four, but if the headline says the two Corys, the debate is over. That's it. I think that's right. Now, though, I am concerned that if I scrolled down farther in the two Corys entry, I would find out that there were, in fact, more Corys. It'll say, um, like, in the uh, that crappy agenda that they usually put in there, the table of contents for the entry, it'll say, like, additional runner-up Corys, uh, adjacent <laughs> Corey rivalries, wannabe Corys. Yes. So those Corys, just to, just to really get to the bottom of this, were Corey Feldman mm-hmm. and Corey Haim, rest in power. Correct. And what's your favorite Corey movie of either oh, well, Corey? If, Not both if, Corey's, but either Corey. Oh, well, I'm going to, I'm sorry. I've got to go for the two Corey's okay. and it's the Lost Boys. Of course yeah. it's the Lost Boys. They were yes. in that movie together. That's right. That's a classic. It is a classic. I should rewatch that. I think I remember, I have a lot of Corey memories now that you, I mean, I haven't thought about the Corey's until you said the two Corey's, but I'm thinking of uh, License to Drive with Corey Haim, classic, saw it in the theater. Corey Feldman, it was in the Burbs. Oh, yeah. Very fond memory of that, although you couldn't, I don't think you could make me watch it now. Tom Hanks in a very strange uh, (laughs) version of Rear Window. Yes. Oh, he did a lot of like weird suburban anxiety movies because there was also, wasn't he in The Money Pit? Yeah. With Shelley Long? Yes, he was. With Shelley Long. That's the Wikipedia entry we should be looking at. She's no two Corys, though. She is not no two Corys. She might not even have merited one of the Corys in their, in their, at their Ooh, zenith. That's rough, though, man. That's rough. They were, I do think, stars. yes. At the height of their power, they were, they were getting big movies, and truthfully, she was not. That is fair. But we should probably talk about something other you. than celebrities from the 80s. How dare you? I mean, we could just decide to punt and just talk about our favorite movies from HBO in 1986. No, I, I think you're right. Let's talk about. Uh, let's talk Since about. I our... Derailed ourselves with the two Corys. <laughs> we can. That's why there's an edit button. We can dump that entire thing if you wish. Good um, idea. Yeah. Let's talk about our pals, the um, hundred million mega consumers that were <laughs> that spawned just to move the wheels of capitalism and democracy forward um, in the most progressive and um, high volume way with all their energy and idealism that they brought uh, as was detected when they were in kindergarten. Yes, we knew then. We knew um, the way they were drinking their um, juice boxes that 
they were going to be the next greatest generation for sure. <laughs> and, and, you know, like the thing about it is like, it was such an amazing kind of tightrope that we wanted them to walk, right? Like they needed to be really, you know, uh, trusting and obedient and good consumers, but also they still needed to be young people and they needed to be idealistic yeah. and they needed to like change things for the better because otherwise how would we prove that they were the next greatest generation and so like the pressure was really on the pressure was really on yeah so i i think this is funny the idea that millennials were going to be this perfect idealist generation and they were going to tackle a lot of the challenges that were already evident in terms of um uh, climate and in terms of other other things that we knew we needed a new force to to uh, move forward to get out of gridlock or to change mindsets at this young age they were assigned this role of being really idealistic and open-minded and progressive and i'm not sure there's data anywhere that says i'm sure there's data that says they were idealistic when we talked in an earlier episode about the um, the uh, high school senior survey that's done, it's consistent with every generation 10 years ahead of them, 10 years ahead of that group, 10 years ahead of that group, that that sort of trust in government is consistent. Uh, mm-hmm. My belief that I can impact the future is consistent with the with generations ahead of them, you know, older generations. So I I wonder where the data came from that might suggest these this group would be more idealistic. I think some of it's a characterization of what they were saying they thought was possible and also what they were saying they thought they wanted and that that got described as idealism because yeah. you see it like reflected in, you know, there's some Gallup data about work-life balance, essentially. And yes. so like that gets described as, optimistic and idealistic about believing that life and work should be worthwhile and have meaning, for example. And, um, you know, thinking that they want to actually learn and grow in their careers, you know, (laughs) and seeing like data of like a full 87% of millennials saying professional development is important to them in a job. Why is that described as idealism? Right. You know, spent a lot of money (laughs) to get the degree that got you the job or to get the skills or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. You should want to progress and, you know, I don't know. I mean, and also we raised them to want to progress, like to think that getting better at things was important and um, and that achievement was important. And so why would we think that they would suddenly drop that? But also, I mean, I don't think we did. I think instead we just transmogrified that into aren't they idealistic? Um, and And it's just very funny because it's like, idealism ascribed, for instance, boomers in the 60s is this kind of utopian, free love, gender equity, you know, everybody's the same. Dare you say idealist. Yeah, dare you say idealist, exactly. But they were, you know, they were bomb throwers. They were going to destroy the existing order, blah, blah, blah. And so they were idealists in this way that also was good and bad, right? Like on the one hand, the dawning of the age of Aquarius, they're going to change everything. And then, oops, they, you know, grew up, got married and got, you know, mortgages. So now they're, they've sold out. They did not, in fact, change the system from outside of it. And here come millennials going, I just like to like my job and get better at it over time and have some professional development and growth opportunities. And people are like, you idealists. <laughs> I know. And I, this, this conversation about their, um, 
idealistic nature and they're they're bent for fixing everything and and adjusting the system around them will tie into our, the conversation we had previously about um, the HR pitching that Sherm kind of coming in with here's how you manage these people because uh, yes they were there was a hypothesis that they were idealistic around political issues and global issues, climate, and these, these things that they grew up with hearing that like, Hey, these systems are all crashing and, and you're We know you're going to fix them because you're so many people and you're so great. And uh, Tyler told us that it's your time to shine. So it's true. But then it's like, well, yeah, but they're really hard to manage and they want what they want and they might leave a job if it's not good to go get a better job. It's like, well, that's not idealism. That's just equity. They're saying, yeah. I don't, you know what? I thought about this and I don't have to stay at a shitty job for 50 years because you might give me a watch. I can just go across the street and take a better job. Yep. Yep. No, I mean, I, I remember, you know, as a, <laughs> whatever, as a young Gen Xer going and getting one of, you know, my first real job in a full service agency and working there a couple of years and then getting a new boss. And she said to me, you know, if you kind of sit tight for like five more years, your salary will double. And I was like, five more years to get to 60K? Are you out of your mind? Right. And I was like, if, if there had, she couldn't have done a better job telling me it was time to go find another job. Yeah, because it was just like, absolutely not. Am I going to kind of keep doing I, this for five I more years? I actually can't. No, I remember I, having the <laughs> yeah, I remember having the same conversation where it's like I had done the good soldier thing and my you know, my first art direction job. And, you know, I was paid fairly, I guess. But I went in and said, hey, like, I can't afford a car. And I eat ramen at my desk every day. Like, what's the plan? And they were like, well, we, we think we could get you to like a 5% increase. And I was like, <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think you understand how percentages work. That's not going to actually help me. And I understand why it's fair from your point of view, but mm -hmm. it's not. And I'm not a millennial. So I, I don't, I was reading those stories as a Gen Xer who was, I didn't really, it didn't concern me until I was managing millennials. Mm-hmm. But when I started reading those stories, I think there's a, those stories that I remember were written for boomers who owned the business yeah, and positioned as a point of terror. But for me as a Gen Xer, I was like, but I kind of get this. Like, yeah, they want to make money and they want to pay their bills and they want to know what the path is. These all sound reasonable to me. Mm -hmm. well, this has been a thread through so much of our conversations that a lot of what we're describing, even when we're using words that like a neutral read of them would suggest that these were positive attributes to assign to a generation, idealistic, right. idealistic what have yeah. you, that they're actually coming from a place of deep anxiety. <laughs> I dropped this this quote into the into our shared document about, um, you know, how the non-religious are younger and more liberal than the population as a whole. I'm fairly certain that this came out of uh, out of an Atlantic article, most likely. So what's interesting about that is, first of all, you know, there's some concern here, I think, about non-religiosity in younger people and that that correlates with political liberalism, which is probably just, I mean, that makes sense. Um, but like then the population as a whole, it's always like, well, how much more, how much less, whatever. 
But the other thing about it is that that doesn't make people go, oh, good, we might make some progress on social justice issues or other matters of equity that are being held back by, um, you know, kind of even amongst those religious communities, kind of outdated ideas about how society should be structured, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, right. Um and and yet instead it's like, oh, well, no wonder they're getting involved in high profile social justice blow ups on college campuses. And then we've got to, of course, quote Jonathan Haidt in The Coddling of the American Mind, which Gosh. I just want to burn. That's the one book I probably want to burn. I know you are. Um, if books could kill a listener. Yes. So they just did you get to that episode yet? I did. Yeah, that was very satisfying. Yes. Um, that show, I cannot recommend that enough. We should link to it. Not that they need our help. Um, in fact, the other way around. <laughs> if if those guys would link to us, we'd appreciate it. But yes. that's a great, great show and worth every worth every lesson. Now, I don't think it's breaking news that college students engage in social activism on any level, on any side of the issue that they're interested in and intrigued in. I don't know how boomers who pretty much invented the unruly like sit-ins and we're gonna come up with new ways to disrupt the system, which was very effective started this idea that's like, oh, millennials are really, they're active. They're politically uh, prov provocative. It's like, what on earth are you people talking about? You're the guy. I, it's the Spider-Man meme. It's like, isn't that you? No, I'm, wait a minute. Hey. I, I personally have a theory about this, which is that I think it has been a really un uncomfortable transition for baby boomers to become the establishment. And that Having young idealists point at them and say, you didn't do enough or you're wrong about something or, um, you know, whatever, I disagree with you. <laughs> I have questions in class. Like they, they weren't expecting that. I think they thought that they had earned the right through the things they had done when they were young to be taken seriously as idealists themselves. But, you know, age comes for us all. And, um, and especially like in an academic setting where, you know, there are a lot of social structures about academia, as you well know, that can lead people into, I, I don't want to say like, I don't know, you know, not establishment thinking or whatever, but like they, they adopt frameworks, they adopt frames, they think they know best. It is their job to know best. They are instructing you, the student. And the hardest part of teaching, which I've done a very small amount of, is like letting there be space for yes, let's have a robust discussion about it. Let's disagree. And yet the curriculum's the curriculum. So we have to move on. Right. 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 And I think what happens with people at these kind of um, higher paid <laughs> institutions of the likes that Jonathan Haidt works in, like, I think that they just thought that they should be given a pass and that they should never be criticized. And that like, well, I'm, I'm on the side of right. I'm actually on your side. I basically right. agree with you politically. Why are you criticizing me? And I think that that's where so many of these books actually come from is like, I feel aggrieved because you don't like what I said. And so like the, my favorite part of the end of this paragraph that I shared with you is, um, first of all, <laughs> by all means, um, quote to Emil Durkheim talking about collective effervescence and like how when, you know, groups of people sing and sway and chant, it builds up a kind of electricity. Um, but the last line of it is, and that's how a person can end up screaming repent at a stranger for the crime of holding a funny sign. Yeah, I love uh, anecdata. That's my favorite thing. They're going to convert that. They're going to convert one anecdote into an entire, you know, 
scientific study. It's like, actually, you're, you're giving me one example. Like, okay, what? is that, is that at scale, the issue that we're dealing with, or is it something else? No. And, and like to prove it that someone yelled repent. Um, but also I think part of the point of that, that piece was that, okay, they are nominally non-religious, yes, but they have formed a new religion of basically political correctness or wokeness or whatever you want to call it. And, um, and that this is, this is somehow bad. I don't know, like literally there's like a Pamela Paul piece as usual in the New York Times about how like the only people that will be hurt by these, you know, free speech crusades are the students that are protesting the free speech. And I'm like, I don't, you know, you know, our whatever 130th mass shooting incident in 90 days of this year so far, um, people trying to criminalize access to medical procedures for women and trans, trans people, um, book bannings in schools, <laughs> all kinds of, you know, a, a former president under indictment. Like, I don't know. I'm just going to go ahead and say that, like, a couple of students complaining about the bon me in the fucking cafeteria. Pardon my language. How dare you? It's just not important. It's just not important. I'm like, I get that you think it's important. I get there's like some direct pipeline from, you know, the conservative Stanford review to your desk of every time some lib on campus says something silly. But that doesn't actually make it a thing and yeah. stop trying to make it a thing. Well, and it also undermines the actual idealism they have. And which I, is I, their birthright as young people. <laughs> you know? And I'm glad you brought this up. So the template that was set by coddling of the American mind, and I don't think they even intended to set this template, but they did. Thanks, guys. Um, is what you see play out that anytime, whatever happens in the news, we're going to twist it into a narrative that Fox News can run with and make it about the protest. It's never about the thing that's being protested. It's about the protest and how the protest is out of line and the protest is wrong. Or look at these kids. Can you believe these people and how they're behaving? It's wrong. It's going to millennials and not our current state of absolute abject disaster. With regard to millennials and the coddling of the American mind, they were getting both of these things concurrently, which was these damn idealist kids don't know that they're rocking the boat. And how dare they? And it's because we're letting them think that they have power and we're letting them think that they have a right to speak. What the F? But also the Tom Friedman quote that, that you pulled, which is like the opposite, but also punitively attributing to them this idea that they're not activists enough. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the line is amazing. First of all, we, we have to acknowledge that he decides to call millennials Generation Q with the Q standing for quiet. Um, and so while I'm impressed by how optimistic and idealistic you are, I don't understand why you're so pragmatic. And then says, quote, America needs a jolt of the idealism, activism and outrage. It must be in there of Generation Q. That's what 20 somethings are for. And then says an online petition or a mouse click for carbon neutrality won't cut it. So it's that de minimis thing, right? It's just hashtag activism. It's just right. signing an online petition. Nobody cares. They're not doing the right things with their idealism and activism and outrage, according to us. And so they get, the, they get it from both sides of the conversation. They get, whoa, look how rowdy they are. They're abusing their speech. And then also they're abusing their privilege that they've earned to speech. Like at their scale, they should be solving all these issues. 
And then they protest and we yep. say, well, not like that. That's not the way to do it. Let's not, whoa, there's a hundred million of you guys. You have to understand that when you speak, it's, it's louder. You know, it's like very similar to how other right. groups, other groups are treated in a very similar way where it's like, we want you to, we want you to speak. We want to hear from you. Whoa, whoa. Do you know the, how your voice carries when you speak like that? Like you, you're, <laughs> you sound, you sound angry. And it's like, yeah, we are angry. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, here here's Friedman at saying he wants millennials to demand answers from every candidate coming to campus. But then we have Jonathan Haidt in The Coddling of the American Mind quoting to like the FIRE studies about um, people being deplatformed on college campuses, which, of course, is such a vanishingly small number of speakers being deplatformed, whatever that yes. even means. And if and like if you take out Milo Yiannopoulos, if you take yeah. out Milo, then there's then there's nobody <laughs> left. Like, no, if they, they, I think they did, the, they did the research on uh, if books could kill. And they said it was 42 cases. And if you took him out, it's like 35 or something like that. I don't have the right. numbers exactly yeah. right, but I know the total number was in the 40s that is cited in the coddling. And it's like, what are you guys you're yes. trying to make a story out of this? This is not a data point. There are no. I mean, come on. There are hundreds of college campuses no. and you have 40 examples. It's just just do the math. Right. That doesn't yes. add up. So demand answers, but not like that. Um, you know, right. ask ask tough questions about climate change and social security and the budget deficit, you know, performing social security and dealing with the U.S. budget deficit, not historically high profile youth um, topics. But nevertheless, um, you know, I, I think like that depends on a framing question. But the idea of you're not doing it right is just the ongoing narrative about them. From basically yeah. the time that they're getting ready to graduate from college, whatever it is, getting a job, running for office, getting politically active, buying houses, getting married, any kind of major adulting milestone. It doesn't matter what it is. They're doing it wrong. Yes. However, they however they proceed it with it. It's wrong. Yes. It's not it's not the exactly. ideal way, especially if it doesn't exactly benefit somebody that's already in the established position of power. Yeah. And so and if anything, you would have thought, I mean, I you know, raised by a boomer, um, by, raised by two boomers, who talked a lot about that you needed both. You needed both changing the system from within and without, and that there were lots of ways to change things for the better. And so you have in this Salon piece from 2013, this description of pragmatic idealism for millennials, where they have high ideals and strong commitment to those ideals. But they also know that, like, well, what can I actually do? Do. And like the examples of things that come up in the piece are described as small, steady, incremental, practical. It's calling your congressman's office. It's hashtag. It's, yeah, it's writing a letter, you yeah. know, like <laughs> and yet it, because they're doing it electronically, that must be the wrong way to do it. Well, they and are digital. Now, they in, are digital natives. Don't forget. So they are digital natives. But, I mean, in fairness, like I think over the last several years, those same millennials have learned like, nope, they just got to jam up the phone lines because the they have been told by former staffers that we just ignore emails like we don't even read those. So if you actually want to get in front of your elected in some way, you actually have to show up to town halls and you have to go to marches and you have to call the phone number <laughs> listed for your congressperson. And Farah, what happens when they show up? Oh, well, we don't we don't we we don't like that. And sometimes we arrest them. Why are they so um, vocal? So why are they so aggressive? Yeah, right. Right. And it's not just 
politics. I mean, yes, it all relates to politics and it all, it, um, it all relates to the established power structure, but an interesting place for us to dig in as an example, I think is, is climate change and quote unquote, you know, interest in green solutions, (laughs) which if you objectively look at the progress that has been made in real green solutions, like the the number of electric cars on the road and the number of solar panels (laughs) installed. And and there has been a lot of positive progress made, but it's just not enough. But if you look at the way it's reported, it's still treated like a fringe (laughs) thing. And the solutions that millennials were interested in or pitched take on this tenor Almost everything that relates to millennials comes down to like, if we can market it and sell it to them, it's acceptable. And if we can't, then we're going to object to it. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of, of green solutions becomes this thing. It's like, oh, I can put a leaf on my cleaning product. And now I love that millennials are into green solutions. Mm-hmm. But if it means like I'm an oil company and they're going to stop buying gas. No, they're too active. I can't have that. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it, it, it is another every which way is the wrong way. And so if they aren't, you know, uh, mounting the parapets, then they're not doing it right, says Tom Friedman. If they're sh- putting their money where their values are through consumer behavior, then they're not sincere. If they're only doing it through their consumer behavior and not doing the political activism, then it's not sincere. If they're only doing the political activism, but still buying a gas powered car, then they're not sincere. Right. And so there is no right way to do this, I guess, except to be rich enough, frankly, to do all of those things, to to be to have the time off <laughs> to go protest, to have access, you know, have people access probably through money to elected officials, to have the money to afford the electric vehicles before, you know, all the subsidies started to come in, which makes right. them approaching affordable. Right. Um. And, you know, years ago, I did a project where we were using a segmentation that was about how like shades of green consumerism. And what was fascinating about it is it's just a very weird way to think about green, so-called green consumerism anyway, because we would then like try to find people qualitatively and you would have somebody who was living, you know, in a part of the country where they uh, they live on a well they have some solar panels that they have. I mean, this is a while back, actually, kind of before there were really cheap solar. They yeah. had figured out a way to put some solar together for some parts of their property. So, like, maybe they're heating their water with solar, um, but the rest of the house is still on natural gas or wood stoves or whatever. They are keeping chickens. They are growing a lot of their own vegetables, and they're driving Ford F-150s. And, you know... All of those things are true. So are are they green consumers? Yes or no? And it's like one of the problems was a kind of shorthand of, well, were they politically liberal? If they were politically liberal, then they're green consumers. If they're politically conservative, then they're not. And yet those behaviors add up to a far reduced carbon footprint than someone just living in a normal suburban tract home with access to all the public utilities. 100%. And, you know, we see the same thing on a project we've been working on recently about apparel, where this company has invested quite a bit in certifications as fair labor and fair trade and renewable and recyclable materials. 
and they've spent a ton of money on those certifications and nobody cares. In fact, right. they find them kind of suspect because it's like you've spent more time and money getting the badge than on doing the work and telling me about it. And now I don't really trust you. And to your point, like put a leaf on it and now I'm not BP anymore. Like, right. <laughs> no, you're still BP. <laughs> You're not British Petroleum anymore. It's like we right. surrounded our logo with leaves. You see, it's positive. <laughs> it's good now. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and you see it play out with like little waves of um, ideas about like people wanting purposeful brands or, you know, brands with a mission. And, you know, so now everybody's got to have their brand, you know, manifesto or whatever. Oh no! Manifestos predate millennials. Don't don't you dare! Um, but a but oh, a manifesto. Yes, do. <laughs> but a manifesto that says you know we dream of a sustainable future is is tied right. to, to the growth, uh, the maturation of of the the millennial generation. It would be really funny to do some kind of meta study of um, publicly traded companies' ten Ks for like how often sustainability or mission or purpose or whatever got mentioned over a period of time. Surely someone has done this. I'm, I'm making a um, note. I bet we could do it with ChatGPT. I bet ChatGPT could help find those. I'm making a note of it in our document because I think that's interesting. Uh, yeah, because, you know, it, it's it's a, you know, there's some some data from one study we found that was like, you know, eight and 10 consumers that they took action to support a company when they believed in its purpose. And um, and that across all generations, 90 percent agreed that if a brand or company truly lives by a clear and strong brand purpose, they would be more likely to support them. I mean, this, this isn't a novel concept in marketing of like this brand shares my values. Like that's all that that really reflects. Like it's not right. any mission. Right. There are plenty of brands with a mission that I don't agree with. And so I'm not going to support them just because they have a mission where our values interact is a reason to all other things equal. I should buy it. But the problem is the all other things equal. And uh, so, yeah. How many studies? I'm going to ask you this question. I know the answer. You've been doing consumer research for more than 20 years. Every time, if you show them a menu of things with no variables, of price or availability, and you say, this one will kill small children. This one is healthy. This one is not only healthy, but it's green and sustainable. In a focus group or any environment in which someone thinks there's a camera on them, they're always going to say, oh, that sustainable one. That's the best answer. And then you go, okay, well, it is actually 13 cents more. And they go, oh, no, I'm not. <laughs> Well, and, and I, I'm maybe a little more charitable about it, where I don't think it's just because they think the camera's on them. I think it's sincere. Like, if all other things are equal, then yes, I want to buy the thing that's that's good, right? Like, I, I, people don't want I'm to more, walk around knowing they're doing cynical. the wrong thing. I, I guess that's true. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> um, like the, In general, people want to feel like they're doing the right thing most of the time. And yeah. the problem is, like, there are equities to be balanced about what the right thing is. And if I'm feeling like I need to be careful about our household spending, then I might make a trade-off about, okay, well, you know, what that is a thing I'm going to buy frequently. And that 13 cents a pop makes a difference in, yeah. in my budget. And, or I feel like it does. And yeah, I, how much there of are a just right like other values of, yeah, yeah. And, you know, being prudent, looking after the financial health of my family or my household is also 
an important value. Like or, bankrupting or even, yourself to do this is not practical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the 13 cents a unit is a totally different conversation than the electric car where it's like, I actually can't even right. afford it. If, if you told me the Prius is the same price as the Tercel, it's like maybe, but it isn't, you know, mm-hmm. for the same cabin quality. It's like, I, I, that doesn't even make sense to me. I have to pay for this car. Yeah, I mean, that's rapidly changing and will now continue to change. And those prices will finally start to come down. It took, however, effectively industrial policy to make that the case. So this yeah. isn't something that is entirely driven by consumer demand. If anything, I would say, like, one of the things we see as these products improve, the prices reach parity with traditional consumer brands, is that, like, yeah, people will buy these things. They absolutely will. Um, but you've got to bring it in line with affordability. You've got to bring it in line with access. And when they're hard to get, I mean, you know, one of the things I've noticed out where I live is um, a little bump, just a little bump in the electric Mustangs. And I think the reason, as I've just been chatting with people, is those were available. They were on a wait list for a cheap Tesla right. with, with the tax credits. But the Mustang, like they could get that in eight weeks instead of in six to nine months. Right. And so they wanted to stop paying at the pump now because gas prices were so high out where I live. So yeah. like, you know, it made sense. For, now they had the means to do that. They were able to, to, to pull that together. But that there's a lot about just what's available. And for years, we've been talking about this kind of purposeful brands and sustainable brands and all of that stuff in ways that kind of constantly raise the stakes and make it harder as opposed to making it easier. Yeah. And then have other funny things where like there's a lot of greenwashing. I mean, one of the criticisms of ESG investing is that a lot of it's nonsense. And now is that the consumer's fault that it's nonsense? I mean, that that there is a slate of sophisticated investors as well as less sophisticated investors who think that equity, sustainability, and governance are important to the bottom line of businesses going forward. I don't think they're wrong theoretically about that. But what gets accounted for in deciding that it's an ESG play can be utter bullshit. And so is that the consumer's fault? No. Then so if consumers back away from ESG investing or advocates for it say it's not ready, is that a failure of the idealism of the consumer or the investor class? I say no. Like, you know, these are, it's just cart and horse all the time. It's, they're just constantly reversing the the causality on things. And that's the ping pong match that we're always in with the story of, of millennials is some writer decides they are um, idealist. And then Mm -hmm. through a book like Millennials Rising, they extrapolate what their ideals are, what areas they're interested in. They preach and they build a cult of, um, profits that are out there talking about how to maximize, how to sell to these people, how to uh, hire them, how to fire them, how to manage them, how to how to uh, draw profits from them. But they, those people, that cult needs topics. They need material. They need to have things to talk about. So all of a sudden, sustainability rises to the top. ESG rises to the top. Um, corporate social responsibility. These things rise to the top as a way to satiate this audience, a way to attract this audience. And you can see almost immediately the PR aspect of it more than the real. It's more like, well, what are we doing that we can talk about and that we can frame in this way? 
Not It's mm-hmm. not lies, but it's like, oh yeah, yeah, no, we're meeting these requirements. Look, here's what we're doing. That's a press release versus, mm-hmm. you know what? If there's If there really is this group of people, that's 70 million people that are coming into the dominant financial consumer category, how might that transform business and how should we adapt? It, there's a mm-hmm. five to seven year lag of like the press release war of just like, just keep telling them we're, we're put a leaf on it and we got rid of this one ingredient and we're doing, you know, these tiny, small incremental moves and then blaming that group. is like, well, we had to get rid of that cancer causing chemical because the millennials, sheesh. So now everybody's got 20 cents more. It's like, well, I don't know. Yeah. About this, well, th- this is my favorite recent one. My my mother informed me the other day that she had read something some time back about the soda manufacturers taking the word diet off of the diet Pepsi, diet Coke, whatever, because um, probably because of, frankly, some shoddy market research that had people saying mm, diet is a fat shamey word and we don't like diet culture. So it's, it's a turnoff. <laughs> And meanwhile, how many genetic service and elder millennials do I know who are like, you will take this Diet Coke out of my cold dead hands. Cold dead hands, Um, And and it'll probably work out to be a mistake on the order of Toyota deciding to postpone entering the EV market in North America, (laughs) like, because of some bad market research that said that range anxiety was just too big of a deal. Um, Meanwhile, they could be out here with a Ford F-150 Lightning competitor and just killing it in the the heartland. But um, instead, they did this. And now have new leadership, but that's a whole other story. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that is that is the kind of bait and switch on these things, the, um, the bad assumptions. And then who gets blamed? Well, the millennials, um, because they don't like the word diet. And it gets it gets so reduced to something as silly as that when there is a real thing out here in these streets about making people feel bad about their bodies. Like, yeah, it's generally not a good marketing play, except that I also know that, you know, when I was, um, I jokingly referred for years, this is not a good joke, not a good joke. In retrospect, it doesn't age well. But I used to joke in like the 80s and early 90s during the crack epidemic that there were crack babies, but I was a tab baby (laughs) because my mother drank so much tab cola. And like, if they were out at the grocery store, but it was on a sale, she'd get a rain check, like that level oh, of that tab. Much? Yeah, that's and, a lot. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We had like a refrigerator in the garage that was basically just for tab. And um, that's a lot of and tab. I, you know, <laughs> I did a project on tab in ad school. And like the heritage of that brand is it's the first Diet Coke, basically. And the campaign at one point was like tab cola for beautiful people. And these ad campaigns that were about like, um, oh God, I can't remember how the, the jail went, but it was like, what you wanted to be as a woman drinking tab was someone who like made men's heads turn and made them think about you when you weren't around, you know? So you'd have scenarios of like a guy going into a florist shop and the girl at the counter, she's really hot, but then he thinks about his even hotter wife. And so he gets her flowers because she's drinking tab cola. We're well past that now. And well, it's a legit thing, and it should have an effect on what people choose to buy in, in the store. But, you know, does taking the word diet off the product help? Probably not. Probably just guts your sales because people think you're not selling Diet Coke anymore. But, you know, you get to this place where instead of it being a clumsy branding move based on some actual movement yes. in consumer pa- patterns, we no, go, what, well, it's the Pharaoh, millennials and the what little will snowflakes. The headline? 
what will the headline say? Millennials kill diet. Millennials kill diet. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And but that's, that's just the pattern is. that repeats over and over again. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so we keep that endless cycle just keeps turning with that yeah. we started this whole series looking at those headlines and every every time we dig a little deeper it rears back up with whatever the next the next wave i was just reading this mm-hmm. morning about uh millennials are rooting for a housing bust but the but the the nut graph yeah. is like so they can afford to buy a house i can't yes. grudge them for wanting costs to come down so they could buy a house i don't think they're rooting against no. me personally as a current homeowner i think what they're saying is i sure would like to buy in yeah, I yeah. get it. I was in your shoes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm hoping for a rental bust in New York City so I can I can like <laughs> yes. I, I mean it's. I think you uh, missed your window there. Yeah, probably. I'm always missing that window. But yeah. but I think that that is right. There there is, it is always the consumer's fault when we're talking about it on this generational level. It is never system structures, economic patterns. It's never policy. It's never, um, you know, it's never understood in a way that's multi-class. It's never understood in a way that's multicultural. It's never understood in a way that's like, well, there are people who hold power, money, property, and get to decide what we're going to do with it. And then there are people who have less of that power, money, and property. And they would like a piece, please. And... That's just how every society is structured, regardless of its governmental form and uh, kind of economic pattern. And so you can like flex to that or you can just blame them because it makes you sad that you might have to change something. Yeah. And, you know, I'm looking at you had shared this article about investing. Um, I think the article is from Stanford Business. Mm -hmm. And how the difference between younger investors and uh, older investors and their willingness, their comfort levels with investing in ESG, you know, and putting their money where their mouth is. And it shows essentially that millennial and Gen Z investors, it looks like at more than three times the rate will invest in environmental, social, and governance companies that have those programs in place or something that supports that. Mm -hmm. That's not, Millennials are idealistic. That's at this point, oh no, there's they're investing in proven business models that we can see a return that's increased. Like it's sound investing at this point. And I struggle to read this article, which is only it's a year old. So I'm like, what is the point? What is this article saying? This is insane. It's also literally standard investing advice. That the younger you are, the earlier you are in your career, the more more risky and aggressive your investment strategy should be because you have a longer time for that to earn out. And the closer you get to retirement, the more more you should get into into conservative so that you hold on to the wealth you've built. Yes. And so that chart absolutely just looks kind of like that to me. (laughs) If I'm a baby boomer and I don't really know what ESG is, not moving my portfolio around right now when I'm in retirement. Like I'm making teeny tiny moves. And the other thing that happens as you get to be a baby boomer, I've had this conversation across projects and just with family members is like, I feel like baby boomers in particular are sensitive to if it feels bad out there, they are convinced that their portfolio is down. Yeah. Whether it is or it isn't. In general. Yes. And that's because they are the closest to needing to rely on that money. 
And like it it just feels way more perilous for them than it does for someone in their late 20s. Yeah. And and it should like that. That's entirely reasonable. But it, once again, instead of talking about it as life stage, we're talking about it as some sort of generational attribute or defect. Yeah. So you don't talk about it in life stage in in mass media. Like if you're reading, if we were to go search on AARP, we would probably see an article that mm-hmm. talked about that life stage and it wouldn't address it directly. It would address it as right. this is sound practice, you know, but it would never say like if you're mm-hmm. over 60. And then we never, there are hardly any articles or hardly any writers that look at it, or I shouldn't say there are hardly any. There are hardly any accessible writers producing content that talks about the system and the cycles. It's always boiled down to this group versus that group, or this okay. trend is happening and here are the people to blame, or here are the people that should get the credit versus the cycle you just laid out. You know, As you get older, your, your investments, your political views, your leanings like is more conservative. You're trying to protect what you've already built. You're, you're stockpiling money so you can leave things to your family. It's like your attitude changes. That maybe it's because it's assumed that everybody understands it. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But even, even in, this, in the article from, um, from Stanford Business, it says just beneath that chart, overall, 83% of all respondents in this study, so that included Gen Z, millennials, Gen X, and baby boomers, overall, 83 of all of the respondents said they think their personal views should be considered when mutual fund managers use their shares to vote on environmental or social issues. Because what another piece of classic investing advice is like, invest in what you know, invest in the products you use, invest in things you understand, don't invest in things you don't understand. You're, when you're making an investment, you're investing with what you think is going to happen. You're not just throwing money right. on the roulette wheel. You're saying, my personal yeah. opinion is that there's going to be more electric cars. Therefore, I'm going to look for services that support that. That might be battery manufacturers. That might be X, Y, or Z. That doesn't necessarily yeah. mean I'm idealistic about it. It just means, hey, shit, I see solar everywhere. How can I invest in that? Yep. Right. But it gets- and, and this is, you're absolutely right. It, it, it is not talked about as like, this is just normal. The other thing they, they say in there is the average investor in their 20s or 30s was willing to lose between 6 and 10% of their investments to see companies improve environmental practices, whereas boomers, the average boomer was unwilling to lose anything. Now, of course, the average is doing a lot of work here. <laughs> there yeah. are some people in that 20s and 30s group who aren't willing to lose anything. And there are some boomers who are willing to lose quite a bit. But at the same time, you're right. It is this... Um, it, it, Investing, so I worked on an emerging markets exchange traded fund launch several years ago, and it was fascinating because you got like the baseline, you know, mutual fund uh, 401k kind of investor. And that person who isn't very sophisticated, you're absolutely right, is advised to like invest in things you understand. And if you're going to actually start buying individual stocks, definitely do that. Invest in companies you understand. Yeah. Um. And my friend Jane Barrett years ago started a business called Goldbean that she ultimately sold. The whole idea of it was like, look at where you spend money and then we'll tell you about which of those companies are publicly traded and give you some um, information about the investment prospects of buying individual stocks in those companies. Because she had like said, hey, I I spent a lot of money at Whole Foods and Apple and maybe I should buy some stock, (laughs) you know, get some get some piece of that back. That's how we were taught to invest. Absolutely. And then when you become more 
sophisticated as an investor, what the one of the founders of this company told me is that it, it switches slightly. And so now it's not just invest in things you understand. It's use your investments to express your preferences about how things ought to be. Mm-hmm. And so if your belief is there should be more trade in emerging markets, there are a variety of strategies for doing that. If you want to see more infrastructure investment in India or whatever, there are funds that you can buy into that support infrastructure investment in India. If you want to have more consumer choice in the BRIC countries, then you can invest in Coca-Cola, companies you know, yes. in order to do that because they're selling their products into those companies like, right. or into those countries. That That is just a slightly more sophisticated version of this. And what and it- we're seeing here essentially is Younger investors saying, I would like to express my interests while also investing in things I understand. So, yes. And, and it, is, it is both uh, more sophisticated, but it is also requires more capital to take that view because yes. you have to be able to put Absolutely. more on the line to make that impact. Now, what's interesting about the uh, chart, as well as, as some of what we've already talked about, is that they've, they're already starting. I think we've touched on this in earlier episodes. Gen Z is included with millennials. Like they're just rolling them up. It's like, oh, you're not a boomer. Yep. You're on the other team. So in the chart, it is our cat has their own. Gen X is, I'm, it is miraculous that we're even mentioned. Thank you, Stanford, for considering us as a generation worthy of analysis. Um, but then millennials and Gen Z together, because again, so many Gen Z are under 18 and really shouldn't be at all, but they're already getting lumped mm-hmm. in with being the, the next people that are going to save us and the next level of idealists. And I don't know if you know this, Farah, but there's a, a Gen Z uh, representative who is going to turn the entire government around. Gary yeah, by the way, he's a millennial. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm hoping that we can talk a little bit about him because I think next time we wanted to talk about um, about millennials and politics. But I think that is um, that that rolling it up and just like, OK, and also just seeing the narrative about millennials just rolled on to Gen Z. And yeah. um, and just like eh, just youngs, you know, millennial, millennials, <laughs> the, the part de. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and you know, and what I think also is funny is the emergence recently in kind of pop discourse of the phrase uh, "elder millennial." Um, I still prefer "newly old" because I think it's funnier um, because it's it's less about being a millennial and just like "welcome to forty four. But we've <laughs> also talked that. <laughs> They age people out of millennialism when they, as if it's a, a cult, they'll, they will change the criteria for what qualifies as a millennial. Basically, if they become a homeowning conservative parent, it's like, well, they're, 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 they're not really millennials anymore. They're almost like quasi boomerish. We'll call them Gen X just to rule them out here. It, the, the, uh, the goalpost moves yes. a lot. And, and we've talked a lot about who set the years for this and how they've shifted at the beginning, you know, in the turn of the mm-hmm. century, turn of the century sounds like a crazy thing to say, but we lived through that. Um, we did, barely. but, but it, now they're moving the goalposts again. They're changing the ages again. When they, when they report on millennials, it may not be that traditional age set, that traditional sample size of what was a hundred mm-hmm. million, then was 70 million. You have to read really carefully the fine print because it, you know, a 40 year old millennial just sounds confounding to a boomer. And so they're like, well, it's really people 18 to 30. And it's like, no, no, you can't just redefine (laughs) it. I'm, I'm telling you, that's not fair. That's not right. If you want to have data that is, that is even close to telling a story. 
Yes. We, we did not suddenly decide that boomers included people born in 1972 just because <laughs> it was fun. Like, and yet that has happened, right? Like the millennials rising is fairly explicit that it's 80 to 2000, 2002. I give them what credit, I see they, increasingly they stayed consistent there. They did. But what has been happening over time is this pushing it back to like, well, maybe it's 96. And I can almost see the argument for 96. The argument for 96, as I would understand it, is this. You would have been in school at kindergarten when 9-11 happened. So you might have a memory of 9-11. And if you're born after 96, you probably don't have much in the way of a memory of 9-11. Right. And letting that be the bookmark is an interesting choice. But it does also mean that all of a sudden this very nice guy from Orlando is a, is a Gen Zer instead of a, mil- a millennial, which he yeah. would be under millennials writing. And, and, and it also, to your point, does seem to be like, actually, we'd rather talk about young people. So we would rather stop talking about you at about the time you turn 30, which is just like, I, I mean, basically since the invent- invention of teenagers, I think we have decided that youth ends at 30. And, um, I can, I and can that, that is, that's the end of that, right? Yeah. Like once you're 30, you're not a kid anymore. And, um, and, and also as a brand or a marketer or a media hub, I don't want you because I won't, you know, th- there is still just such a belief in if I get you young, I'll keep you forever and yeah. you'll be valuable to me ad infinitum. And, and I won't have to work as hard once you get past 30, cause I've already got you. Yeah. Um, and it's more Which fun is- to work for the youngs. Because you can do cool photo shoots and make content or whatever. You know, I've thought about that part. Yeah, I'm also cynical about it. And I've thought about that aspect of it too. And I've wondered if that's another cycle, which is a labor cycle, where we want to focus on young consumers. The the stated wisdom is what you just said. The stated wisdom is, oh, we're going to build loyalty, which by the way, you and I know is a pipe dream, but for most categories. But I wonder if... Like when I was a young person, before I had the gall to go in and say, hey, I can't afford a car. What are you going to do to take care of me? I wanted to work on stuff for young people because it was sexier and more interesting. And the lower wage was like, yeah, but I get to go to New York and I get to go do these things. And I shoot these commercials for mm-hmm. the, like with fashion brands, like that's cool. Versus if they would have said, okay, Adam, here's your assignment. You're going to design coupons for, um, you know, whatever, a, a grocery store. You know what I mean? It's like, well, that's not really that mm-hmm. sexy. That's not that interesting. And so I think part of it is we want to appeal to the young because we want young staff to work for a nickel a day in in a lot of these fields. And they don't they won't be attracted to it. The energy won't be the same that keeps them here. And I think we're start we've seen over the past four years, like the departure of people from agencies and marketing in general who have just realized it really doesn't matter. <laughs> I need to. I do need to pay my rent, um, regardless of how. I think cool it's a really good point. Is. I think it's a really good point because I, I think there is a certain, if nothing else, there's a belief in that, and you know, there's also just the long-standing belief that, um, you know, pharma advertising or cars or whatever, unless it's a luxury car, can't be exciting. That it's all kind of block and tackle. Here's the APR. Here's the monthly spring sale. Come in now. And the the things that feel formulaic don't feel like you're learning anything or whatever. And and I think, but I think it's also true of agencies in general, you know, marketing in general is such a cult of the young kind of um, culture that even the 55-year-old executive creative directors want to wear the cool streetwear and want to know what the cool Spotify playlists are 
do they want, want to go to? to the shoot with a young celebrity. Do they well, want to or do they feel like they have to? They feel like they need to. Yeah, they feel like they need to in order to stay relevant. But I think it also feeds their ego of like, no, I'm the cool dad. Yeah. I think every dad thinks they're the cool dad. Yeah, that's fine. I, I a lot know of dads are cool. My kids let me know I'm not. So it's, it's good. I've accepted it. That's, that's the kid's job. Yeah. To tell you that you're not, even when you are. You are. <laughs> Thank you. I needed that positive affirmation. Everybody should be so lucky to have Farah giving them positive affirmations. <laughs> well, I think we've, I think we've, uh, I feel like we could talk about this for another hour. Oh, undoubtedly. I think we say that almost every episode, though, I know. which is why we do another hour two weeks later. I know. And what's, what's funny for people listening to the edited version of this is there's an hour before and there's an hour after that we, that we <laughs> cut, um, so to make it as consumable, yes, we spare you from some of it, but some of it turns into whole new episodes. So it's true. I have a feeling we're gonna right. re- this topic will be revisited as we uh, as we keep moving through. So I, I, there's more to scratch. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, our plan next week is to talk about the kind of political alignments and these things will come up again because these consumer behaviors are lined up against social values. And so they're going to have a lot in common. Yep. Yep. We're not done with this yet. So excellent. See you soon. All right. On the next episode of In the Demo, Farah looks at narrative intelligence, how systems of power and money tend to drive the shape of myths and narratives, and how the millennial myth was written without the black and underrepresented members of this huge group in mind. In the Demo is produced by Farah Bostic and Adam Pierno with support from The Difference Engine. Music by Omega Man, used under the Creative Commons license. Go to In The Demo Podcast for behind-the-scenes research and supporting information.